0: doesn't get you in the mood, I do not know what will. Welcome to my Mrs. Maisel pod. I'm so happy you've joined me and my guests today. Oh, what a guest I have for you today. Uh, If you're new to the pod, let me explain a couple things up top, if I might. There are a couple of uh, Mrs. Maisel podcasts out there. They're terrific. They're fine. They're lovely. They do a damn good job. They care. That's obvious. And I love them for it. But, yeah, you knew that was coming. The but. None of them have the insider skinny, and that's what this pod is going to specialize in. We're going to have the cast on, crew, in front of the camera, behind, cinematographer, uh, wardrobe genius, every department head, production design, casting, just really in front of and behind 400-plus men and women who have worked on this show going to have so many of dozens and dozens and dozens of them to discuss break down some episodes, but also just talk about the overview of working on this show. Again, inside stuff you're just not going to get on those other terrific Mrs. Maisel podcasts. But also, I'm going to uh, involve you in the podcast. You can write to us. Oh, yes, you can. I'm going to be reading your emails. Write to us, my goodness, at mymrsmaselpod at gmail.com. That's mymrsmaselpod at gmail.com. I'll be reading your emails. Any and all input from you, I would love to hear. I will be personally responding to your emails. Yes, that's right. And also, I want you to be involved in the questions for my guests. So, anyone who's ever worked on the show, cough up a question about them. You don't know. You don't know when it's going to come. If I use your questions, there's prizes involved. Oh my goodness. Do I have prizes? Again, these prizes, much like the show itself, are um, items that you're just not going to get anywhere else. How would you like an autographed copy of the script? Uh, the Marvelous Mrs. Maisel, would you like that? One of the prizes. Mm-hmm. That's right. To enter this contest, simply promote the pod on your socials, as I mentioned. You can also win a copy of our wardrobe genius, Dana Zakowska, historical, comprehensive, and entertaining book, Madly Marvelous, The Costumes of the Marvelous Mrs. Maisel. I've got six copies that she generously autographed to give to you as contest prizes throughout the course of this podcast. They are items of uh, prize that I have my particular hands on because of my involvement, of course, as a series regular on this multi-award winning show. I'm still hyped up from the music. I don't know what it is. That music just... mm. Can't get enough. Oh, in addition to the cast and the crew who worked on this show, I'm also going to have some very fantastically famous people that you'll know from outside the Maisel world who happen to be fans. I did a chat show for 10 years, 400 episodes, and uh, talked to so many extraordinary big time show business folk. And um, over the years of Maisel, I would get a text or an email, or sometimes a phone call from these folks who just love the show. So I thought, let's have them on too, maybe to to talk about their favorite episode, maybe just to talk about certain aspects of the show that they just really love, some overviews, some storylines. Yeah, so famous folks talking Maisel, coming your way in addition to the folks who worked so very tirelessly on the show to bring it to you each season. We're going to break down the seasons in chronological order by episode, but also step away on occasion from those episodes that we'll be breaking down in order just to talk all things Maisel. But those of you that like a nice episode breakdown, there will be quite the through line through the course of each podcast season that will coincide with that particular Mrs. Maisel season. And I'm very excited to bring all of those famous folks and their input about the show to you. All right, let's get to the episode now. I guess a lot of people would build to the best. I started with the best. Yeah. Yeah, I went a little loco for episode one, and that's why I'll be chatting today with Mr. Luke Kirby. Multi-award winning. Oh, baby! While, of course, Luke and I will be breaking down season one, episode one, we also do a pretty deep dive on his entree into the world of Maisel, into the world of Amy Sherman Palladino and Dan Palladino. But yeah, Luke is... um. You know, he's mysterious, but he's also hilarious and very forthright with his journey to Maisel. And, uh, yeah, he's going to share a lot about uh, what was referred to as the pilot episode of the series. But we're just going to call it Episode 1, Season 1. As is with this podcast, Episode 1, Season 1 with Mr. Luke Kirby. Yeah. As threatened, here is multi-award winning actor Luke Kirby. Luke! Luke! Hello. <laughs> How are you?
1: I'm, I'm well. I'm thinking, I'm trying to think of what the multi would. Well, we, I think Excuse we me. share two SAG awards. Oh, geez. We have to get into that. I mean, no. I don't know that I technically.
0: No, we don't have to.
1: <laughs> I mean, I know that I have one award.
0: I do know that you walked away with a golden weapon. Yes. A double pronged weapon. A two pronged toothpick. Yeah. And, and, it, uh, well, it's called an Emmy. Yes. And where does it reside? Let's just jump to that.
1: It's moved around. I mean, sure. My, my intention was to, you know, once I had it in my hands, I thought I really need to show this off.
2: So you carry it, it.
1: It hypnotized me. Yep. And, uh, so I, I thought, Oh, I'll build something for it. But of course that, you know, I was like, well, maybe I'll build something later. So then I thought I'll put it right on the, in the middle of the dining room table and we'll just, you know, invite a lot of people over for meals and perfect. We won't have to talk too much. Nope. But then I went straight from the ceremony to rehearsals for a play and then the play wrapped. And then within a couple of months, COVID happened. And so I never really got to have anybody over. So for a year it sat I, on the dining room table, but yeah. with just me and Drea sitting across. <laughs>
0: She must have loved that.
1: So it became a bit of like a a fruit stand.
0: Uh Uh-huh. Well, it can hold at least two items that it can pierce. That's right. Of fruit. uh, uh, Speaking of the SAG Awards, so I need you to weigh in on what I've done to mine. So the night of the awards, they hand you the absurdly heavy award. And then six weeks later, the plaque shows up with instructions on how to adhesive yes so when I got a second one I decided to do a little something with it and I'm just curious oh yeah what your first thought is on I, 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 well I went to that callback uh,
1: yeah yeah he's a he, they're, it, what, what <laughs> would I, satisfy an actor more <laughs> than meeting his identical twin
0: I mean it made so much sense to me it's you <laughs> You're perfect, uh, but also let's start having fun. I thought with the silliness of these things immediately upon the second one showing up, the first one, whatever it is, coveted, fantastic. If you're giving me a second one now, I gotta, I gotta have some fun. Right?
1: You gotta do so. Yes. Right. I mean, with two, you can definitely you can turn into bookends for sure. Yeah. But yes. you might as well play with them first, like action figures, the old school G.I. Joes.
0: That's right. I like that. The problem with the bookends for me is it presumes too much that I've read.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, it's uh, okay to present that you read, though. I mean, that's <laughs> what I do.
0: Well, you present that you dine.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yes.
0: <laughs> that's
1: true. And how.
0: Yeah. I have to tell you, I did a uh, very shallow dive yeah. before we got on this here Zoom of my gene and, pool. Uh, no, just of your IMDb, and came across a trailer for No Man of God, which uh, we had talked very little about oh, yes. in terms of your being involved in. But I didn't realize you you were starring in that with Elijah Wood, who I worked with on Barry Levinson film. The great Jew saga Avalon. That's right. When young Mr. Wood was a scant eight year old. Did he right. seem older when you worked with him? Older than eight? <laughs> yeah. Not especially.
1: Right. <laughs> he is forever young. <laughs> uh, he maintained, I mean, I, you know, I, of course, have, you know, known him my whole life as a viewer. And sure. I've watched him grow. And I actually have a theory about his. Like, you know, he's so he's such an exceptional sort of byproduct of mm. child acting and all that. You kind of go, How how
2: Yeah.
1: I mean, if everybody ended turned out like Elijah, you go, children must be actors. <laughs> yes. Right. Yeah. You know, you would say, Where do I send them?
0: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. How is he not negatively affected by a single moment of this life? At work, he's yeah.
1: He's just, he's incredible. He's just an incredible
0: it's person. It's yeah. Ripley. It's <laughs> or, or he's got the ring. He actually has the fucking ring.
1: Well, I think there's something about that, for sure. I think that that provided him a kind of energy
0: that, you know. Or just those
1: years he definitely,
0: in New, New Zealand.
1: Yes, the years in New Zealand. Kind of, you know, he was in the ice storm. Yes. And he, it, it, I mean, everybody in that movie is phenomenal. That movie is just insane. But the kind of
0: ether. Yes. There was some huffing of ether, no? Yes. Uh, he
1: ends up, he he gets electrocuted
0: Well, in that, right? I'm going to say sure.
1: Anyways, I just thought maybe there was something about, it was the one time that I saw him and I I went, oh, he's going through that phase. Uh, that kind of like the in-between of right. a child actor where it can all sort of crumble.
0: Yeah, it can go in various directions. Corey Feldman.
1: <clears throat> but then he went to New Zealand.
0: But then he went to New
1: Zealand. Yep. He was saying that's what, that's what I planned to do when I turned In the waters. Nine.
0: Yeah. Uh, but now Jamie and I are excited to see that no man of God.
1: Yeah. Uh, yes. Yeah, um, I think Amber, the director, did a really fantastic job and kind of elevated the movie into something that it wouldn't have been without her at the helm yeah so I'll, I'll be interested to see, see what you
0: think you read the script. this is the story of um elijah plays the well all I saw from the trailer is that he's like an interviewer, but i imagine that he's
1: <coughs> he's an f b i agent a guy named bill hagmar who is a retired f b i agent
0: who's who, the one who spent time with
1: bundy yeah over over the course of many m- years sort of had these these you know meetings and uh, was was with him kind of up until the end. In fact, was there well, you know uh, yeah. in the days leading up to his execution. Yeah, wow. Yeah, it's a fascinating guy. You know the stuff that he's had to um, kind of be privy to in yeah. terms of the work he's done. It, you know that case uh, only scratches the surface of his experience. But really, an incredible guy to talk to. Like you know, it's an amazing uh, example of how people can compartmentalize. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, unlike we actors who, you know, have to bring all the work home with us.
0: Technically. <laughs> Mine doesn't even make it to the trailer before I take the makeup off. <laughs> uh, in fact, on both of those awards, the word surface was used in the description of my work. <laughs> so let's talk a little bit about your introduction to the world of Amy Sherman Palladino. Okay. Uh, w- where were you when the opportunity to enter this world came to you
1: i was in los angeles i had andre and i had just gotten married like maybe two nights before come on i'd gone the next day we went to this awards show where i was collecting something for a movie that i had done called touch with fire and i went up and got a did a speech and i you know, I, I, I'm not adept at that kind of thing. And I sort of, but I did sort of feel like, oh, I did good up there. Uh-oh. And then, <laughs> but then I got this thing. And I also, I met Rob Reiner that night because uh-huh. he was there. And then I, I got the next day, I got these sides for Lenny Bruce. And I was like, that's weird because I was sort of fancying myself a bit of a a talent last night. Performer? You know. Some stupid fantasy.
0: Now, it was you said two nights after the wedding? So, was Homer conceived around this time? Yeah, that was the that was the night.
1: It, that, yes, he had the gestate for um, a few five years, years uh-huh. but you know, uh, yeah, he was born with teeth, which makes everything easier. Always, my goodness. We should say for anybody that doesn't know, Homer is our dog. He is your
0: dog, and he is, yeah.
1: uh, and he is our baby.
0: He's one in a billion, is what he is.
1: Yeah, no, that's true.
0: So you get sides from Rob Reiner's office for Lenny Bruce. Yeah, basically. <laughs> and that's confusing. <laughs> uh, and do you have a conversation with anyone first other than your agent? Or, or who do you... Just my agent,
1: my, my my manager. My manager, mm-hmm. Gene Parsagian at the time, he said... And he said, oh, you could play Lenny Bruce. And I said, oh, yeah, thanks for that. That's <laughs> the first time you've said I could do anything. <laughs>
0: it's weird that he was your manager quote unquote at the time
1: well he's gone now he's i mean he's i i he's 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 he's, you know
0: was he kind enough to pass away so you didn't have to fire him yes exactly (laughs) yeah why can't they all go out like that? <laughs> it's true <laughs> why are we forced to transition from one representative to another the single worst part of quote unquote well i've never is. i've never
1: you know that's the only time i had to do it um that's not true but um yeah no he's not here anymore but he well we worked together forever uh did you
0: come up with him in the can i
1: don't have a manager now so in some ways i kind of figure he's still my manager
0: did you bring him from the great White North or? No,
1: he was in New York. He was in New York. Gene was like a heavy hitting yeah. agent, super class. He started a an agency in New York called Triad with Johnny oh, yeah. Blanco. And then yeah. they went, then they got brought over to William Morris and then they were fired and went back to New York and started Parsegian Blanco And Legendary. You were with a big show. Yeah, I was, I mean, I was just like in the back, you know, sweeping up dust
0: motes. You were doing that when the big <laughs> shot said to you, you could play Lenny Bruce. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The kid put the broom um, down. You could play Lenny yeah. Bruce. Okay. Yeah.
1: Okay. Let me do that.
0: And you read the sides. And what yeah. do you think? Do you think you can play Lenny Bruce? You know, I, the thing
1: with it was kind of like, Oh, Lenny Bruce. If only this had come to me 10 years ago or 20 years ago, you know, it sort of, I had kind of, he had sort of fallen away from my my kind of just wheelhouse of inspiration. Mm. I'd listened to his Carnegie Hall so much when I, the first time I went to LA, I went to Amoeba Records and...
0: But that was the big
1: one. And everything, you know, and I just, I just drove around LA not knowing what the fuck I was doing, but listening to this thing and, you know, obsessing over it. But that was a long, I mean, that was... However long before this, you know, it was 15 years.
0: And did the album, in fact, start with Von Meter is fucked?
1: No, because Von Meter, because the recording's from 61.
0: Ah, okay.
1: So, I mean, Von Meter probably was fucked anyways, but...
0: (laughs) (laughs) He just didn't know it yet. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I had always heard, and I don't know why I memorized this information, like it was gospel. That Lenny Bruce took the stage at a famous Carnegie Hall show during a right. snowstorm and opened with "Boys, i me made fuck." Yeah, so that was not the 1963. It's a, it's two. That's two stories compacted. Sure, Oh so you drove around. But listening he did to say
1: that when Kennedy was, you know, killed for sure.
0: Yeah, not at Carnegie Hall.
1: Two years later, because at Carnegie Hall, Kennedy's about to be in. Um, uh, what's it called when you become president? Born in-
0: Sworn in. Yeah. Yeah.
1: The inauguration. Um, The inauguration is about to happen. And he talks about why he voted for Kennedy. And he says it's because a a child is going to be born in the White House. And he has this kind of this youthful wish For the establishment that up until then had just not provided anything like that. And he goes on to talk about Eisenhower and just, you know, the aged and decrepit roaming the halls. And that Kennedy sort of presented this just completely different aesthetic. So it's kind of, yeah, it's a neat little archival bit of that degree of hope that he had.
0: And so you you had driven around L.A. listening to it. Yeah. Long before the side's. Came to you, yeah. Many,
1: many, many years, and then I just got, you know. And then I think what I when the sides came to me, I think I would just I maybe had grown a little bit cynical about even the venture, sure. Because you know I even had thought about Lenny, like I had thought about playing Lenny Bruce in high school, like when I was a teenager. I mean, I had this whole thing where I discovered the book in my grandparents' attic and ah. had sort of like flipped through the photos, and then I had seen Lenny with dustin hoffman and just thought it was incredible hmm. If for nothing else valerie plurine you know yeah but dustin hoffman's i thought was just astonishing and it's such a gorgeously composed movie and and i kind of walked away from that thinking like man you just can't you know that's that's it mm-hmm. why, why, why then, would you bother yeah why would you bother and then a couple of years later, I was at my grandparents again, watching TV late at night, and they had this on CBC. There was this thing that they, I think it was this thing called RetroBytes, where they showed old kind of archival footage from old interviews. And there was an interview that Nat Hentoff did with Lenny. It was like in the last year of Lenny's life, and I saw this guy with like you know the circles under his eyes, and I thought, oh, maybe I could, <laughs> maybe I could play him. <laughs> Wow, and in fact, I, you didn't—you weren't at the 92nd Street Y, yeah. Thing, but I told a story there about having discovered it two seasons into Maisel. I had gone back to my parents' house, for my dad's birthday, and my dad has collected clippings from work I've done, and you know things that are mm-hmm. embarrassing and
2: mm-hmm.
1: feel horrifying to even go near. But I, for whatever reason, when I was back that time, I decided to kind of peer into it, peer into the past because I felt healthy enough that I could, you know, manage it. And how'd that go? You know, it was okay. The thing is that I found this high school assignment. It was like a kind of like a journalism thing where you put together like a, you know, a newspaper and I interviewed myself. Uh And I presented myself as this, you know, insanely successful actor who had done all these, you know, had all this accolade. And it said like things like you know he had just won a Tony for Waiting for Godot with Nicholas Cage, and <laughs> I had been oh. in the Zoo story with Dustin Hoffman, and wow. But then it said uh, he'll be returning to New York this fall to play Lenny Bruce in the play Lenny that Julian Barry play. So it was a fantasy from a long time ago.
0: That's a crazy, crazy, crazy thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I mean, well, I'll give you the photo opposite since you didn't ask. Um, I I started as a stand-up comedian with no formal training as an actor. Saw Michael Keaton in Night Shift and thought, oh yeah, that's that's the way to go. Yeah. And and then a handful of years and two hundred failed auditions later, ended up in this movie, A Few Good Men, where coming back, everything comes back to Robert Reiner, where, you know, I'm surrounded by giant movie stars, and I I thought, well, this is the this is the one I get found out on it was the eighth film i was in and i thought well this is it this is where right I'm right, right. wait 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 stop stop can we just take 5 everyone uh, uh we we've, we've made a horrible error we we meant kevin klein can you but i went to the great subversive character actor jt walsh sure to his trailer and yeah. confessed all of this and said uh-huh. what do i do and he said um well, I've been watching you, and you're um, you you you're already doing a style of acting that people will train their life to try to master, which is less is more. Yeah. You're already doing that. And I realized what he was talking about, uh, observing, was I was just trying to not ever get caught acting, right. ever. And I didn't realize there was a, a name for it. And then he went on and said, there's a second half. Less is more. Nothing is best. If you can do nothing in a scene, and pull focus, right. you win. I'm not sure what I was going to win, but catch <sighs> that photo. That. <laughs> which is not the case. Which is why I brought all this up. Because it wasn't until I started playing Moish Maisel, a loud, obnoxious Jew, something I had painstakingly stayed away from, uh, just the loud, obnoxious part. I, I'd just been throwing everything away. "Quote unquote, uh, less is more." Ever since JT told me that was a, a technique, right, made a career out of less is more. Really, truly, and then the best reviews and everyone I've ever known saying Mazel was a role I was born to play in, was the single most crestfallen, painful, joyous celebration. <laughs> so, so I was kind of the photo opposite of this. Someday I'll play experience that you've just relayed to, <laughs> right which which I yes I
1: appreciate I mean well it t- turns out more is more
0: yeah well lenny lenny was that sort of inspiration clearly to a lot of impressionable teenage boys and women perhaps sure in the sense of you know his journey and and where he ended up where he started i have shared with you i did a thing at carnegie hall the 125th anniversary or whatever the hell it was uh, where I did uh, a Lenny piece um, as, uh, as asked by uh, Steve Martin. But um, you know, I just had to memorize a bit of his that he did as I'm sure your research showed very little captured on TV in terms of him actually performing before he would Uh, go on stage with a newspaper and talk about who was out to get him.
1: Two Steve Allen bits.
0: There you go. So and, so, then, yeah.
1: and then the Playboy uh, after dark.
0: Yeah. And all of that you had already seen before the audition?
1: No, I the only thing no. I I had only seen the Nat Hentoff interview, which is from wow. later in later and like I think it's even in sixty six, maybe. Uh huh. But then after, yeah, when I got the audition, then I watched the Steve Allen with the airplane glue, which has the airplane glue bit in it.
0: Right. Yeah, I found that interesting in the episode with the first time we see Lenny Bruce on stage. They did choose a moment in time when he was doing that bit to tremendous success. Yeah. While getting on the Steve Allen Tonight Show with that bit was a monstrous successful moment in any stand-up comedian's career. So for the audition, the very first one was with the casting director or with?
1: yeah casting yep. and then and it was the airplane glue bit and the last scene of the pilot
0: yeah which is that's the real acting performance piece in terms of your interpretation of a man
1: well yeah it's, yeah it's amy's voice really i mean it's amy kind of
0: the, you yeah. know yeah yeah this was yeah. not as spoken to uh like the steve allen bit yeah as seen on TV, the monologue conversation. Well, it's an answer to Midge's question. Yeah. And uh, so you did those two pieces for the audition. And then what happened? And then it was a callback. Like, you know, I, maybe within a week. Callback to?
1: To meet with
0: Amy and Dan and Rachel. Shows creators and the star. Yeah. Your first callback on the project think my i think that was it
1: yeah because i don't think they were investing a lot of energy into you know it being something that was going to stick around i think they were just my understanding of it is that it was really just meant to be in you know that he was meant to show up in the episode and then the pilot farewell yeah so it kind of happened in the way that you know day play type jobs happen you know hello nice to meet you how do you do okay you got the job great see you there
0: rather uneventful is what i'm here
1: i mean a little bit i mean or it was exciting it, it was exciting you know and there was a part of it felt like it could be something i mean that's i had i think within that time i had gotten the script then and read it and thought that you know saw the you know how formidable the writing was yeah i didn't know how formidable the production was going to be like i bet was a whole other level.
0: I don't think anyone yeah. could have imagined. Yeah. yeah. So did you get a sense of Amy in that first meeting in terms of who you would later spend a lot more time with?
1: I mean, she just presented herself as very nice. So, you know.
0: Yeah. I, I know fooled. when Zegan went in the first time and audition for her and Dan, it ended yeah. with her saying, thank you very much for coming in. It was nice to meet you. Which is <laughs> yeah. pretty much we'll never see you again, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> I I don't
1: really re- I don't remember it enough to kind of have a sense of whether or not. I think it was you know honestly I think it was one of those things where because I had kind of carried this dream for so long I had suppressed any yeah. sort of wish to do the the job and the only thing that I did was I worked. Really, really hard at knowing all of my shit so that when I was in the room, I would be able to kind of just at least not have any of those hiccups. Yeah, sure. Um, which it turns out is, was it was like a good intuition because of how Amy and Dan work, you know, that they really, they really want to hear things kind of as is and with a pace and all of that. So
0: in one and pace it up. Yeah. But I know when I
1: got the call, I, I felt. Right, There was something about, like, oh, I'm going to play Lenny, you know, that was special.
0: Yeah. The first thing anyone notices from your performance in the pilot, if they had any previous sense or knowledge of Lenny's cadence mm-hmm. and jazz-infused banter and rhythm and physical movement, mm-hmm. did all of that come together for the audition or is it something that evolved after getting the job before you shot
1: i think they even provided me with the clip mm-hmm. uh, with the airplane glue clip and i think there was also a recording that they sent along too so after
0: getting the job
1: no maybe even before amazing maybe. um if not i found it on youtube but i kind of want to say that they provided. it yeah a source because I seem to recall there being two different versions like there was a version that because the version that they used for the show was a recording not from the Steve Allen Mm -hmm. there's a few little subtle gradations and differences yeah in the delivery but uh yeah so I, I had I had definitely looked over that over and over and absorbed it and tried to kind of you know find some body language that would
0: give something Yeah, well, I know since then, we talked about Ted Bundy, but since then, you've played a number of people who really existed. Sure. Or a few. How many times prior to Lenny Bruce had you portrayed a previously exist? Because it's a completely, well, not completely, but certainly a seemingly different beast in the sense that there are rhythms and physical movement to either tap into or completely ignore.
1: Yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I don't know if I had done any. I can't remember, to be honest. Did, yeah. I, did you find that anyway. part
0: helpful, that it was a, a existing or daunting? Or I did uh, this guy who really existed in the movie Casino. and and Yes. Yeah. And uh, Marty, as you're forced to call him, and I still never did. <laughs> uh, but I can say it in the context of this. Marty uh, insisted I not meet the actual guy, who was still alive. Right, right. But Marty was not. Of mine that I should do that, mainly, yes. because it wouldn't have mattered to anyone if I did pick up on his rhythms
1: right well i've heard, I, I've heard a lot of I've heard that a lot in sort of when people play real people they you know I didn't want to meet him, I didn't want to look at anything, I just wanted to you know, but in this I didn't case, want to get caught up in mimicry, I guess,
0: but in this case you you have no choice
1: well, I mean, having grown up, just wishing that I could be the
0: next rich little. <laughs> <laughs> that's not true first of
1: all oh, no, okay jo- uh, the next george and jo- since george kirby is my grandfather
0: yeah exactly
1: no but i had a i didn't no i felt like it was time to just dive in and sort of you know you're not making effects similarly, emily i guess you just it's but you I, his rhythms are so specific that's that's really and, the, the thing and his language is so specific yeah And his you just so it makes you just think about that person's lungs like that person's lungs are just designed differently than mine. How do I invite my lungs to kind of like reshape how do you know, his brain is so hot and fired up. How do I get to a point where I can invite my sort of sloth like, you know, laconic nature to kind of get, you know, hopped up a bit.
0: Yeah. And play a jazz trumpet. (laughs) Yeah.
1: yeah so I so it to me it was just sort of go for broke, and so with the when it was doing his bits, it was easy because it was really just try i mean you know, just trying to find the sound and then yeah, you know find some and and then playing the scenes was a little bit different because it's kind of you know you were not working off of a recording you have to come
0: up with something yeah that works. Shooting the pilot. Yeah, yeah. I mean, let's go to the maybe the phone call just prior of you got the gig. Was there a sense of relief or oh fuck now what? Careful what you. No, wish. it was
1: really it was a really happy thing. I mean, Dre yeah. and I had just you know taken the plunge, and yeah. I wasn't especially busy. wasn't feeling especially good about you know work yeah. and you know what I was getting to do. So it felt like, no, it felt really, it was double happiness, given that it was a job and that it was Lenny Bruce. It was just like, you know. So, yeah, no, I remember going to, saying to Dre, we were out in Long Island at my aunt's house. and Yeah, it felt, um it felt dusted with something, you know, special.
0: Yeah. Yeah, undeniably. And the shooting of it, was that also a similar feeling in, in terms of, this is something special or are you filled with self-loathing while doing anything in front of a camera?
1: No, I like, I like to work. Great. I like, I like to work and I like to work. I like working more, more and more. Not, I don't like working more, but I enjoy
2: more <laughs> more and more sh- more.
1: showing up more. Like I do. And I enjoy, I know that I just feel like, um, I don't know. You just have to be forgiving of yourself. And then I can kind of, as long as I did what I set out to do that day, I yeah. can really enjoy the evening. Like I can just go home and feel like I, you know, I got my hands dirty in a really cool way. It's kind of yeah. simplistic, but it seems to sort of keep no. me sane.
0: And was that the sense in while shooting the pilot? It was, um, the first thing
1: I did was the scene in the back of the police car. Ah,
0: okay. I don't think you speak.
1: Very brief. I think I say hello or something.
0: Oh, that's right. Yeah. Cigarette dangling.
1: Cigarette dangling. Overcoated. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I remember Dana coming around to my trailer and saying, you have to sign the paperwork.
0: (laughs) (laughs) See, this is this, that, there you go. This is the inside information that no one has.
1: I'm not allowed to do this yet. But no, it was, it was somewhere in the, I don't know where it was, like, it, I feel like it, it wasn't the West Village that we were shooting. I feel like it was over on the East side, like, but it was this, you know, the street was decked out. Yeah. Like it was decked out and it was walking onto that set was the way that it is, has always been. And what to me is maybe why it does feel so seamless is that there is nothing to distract you from being transported into the world. Yeah. It is. I think partly because of how they shoot it. Because there's so much work done on the steady cam, and it has to be so much opportunity for 360. They cover everything. So, you walk into this world the way you would into like Epcot Center uh-huh. and you just sort of are like, this is really close to the real thing, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Plus the added charm of shooting in New York, like city I've called home for a long time. It's a gorgeous place. Most of the time you don't get to work there and it just felt so of the city of the time that, you know, it's of the time that my mother was a kid growing up there. Like it just felt me. It just felt meaningful and purposeful.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And I just sort of found myself just loving being in that trench coat and kind of strutting around in between takes. And mm-hmm. it just sort of felt like, um, like I, I just was happy for the invitation, you know. Because I I have always, since I was a kid, loved play that is as immersed as it can be. I, you know, that is just such a
0: oh my goodness, you
1: yeah. know, just so fun. And sort of to find out that everybody else. My biggest frustration as a kid was like when kids would go get bored with the game. Like, no, no, we got to keep. You know, the wave is coming. Don't you see? You know, like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. But that the finding out that everybody else was sort of on board and every department was, you know ridiculous. Yeah, just made it really a happy a happy thing. So that was the first, you know, the first night and then I think the next thing we shot was the Airplane Glue bit
0: on stage actually,
1: on stage, yeah. Same area I think. I think it was the yeah. And that the, the best thing about that day was that I got to hang out with Gilbert Gottfried.
0: How about that? I mean, that was He plays the amazing. MC. Yeah. Yeah. She's
1: 18 in Dog years. (laughs) So you
0: were very aware of him, his act, for decades. Yes, my whole life, of course.
1: Yeah, and I also my dad, who's not a great joke teller,
0: Mm -hmm.
1: but loves comedians. But he always would talk about (laughs) Gilbert Gottfried's Elmer Fudd in Apocalypse Now. Uh (laughs) The hallway. The hallway. So growing up, my dad did that all the time and just made sure. himself laugh with that. Yeah. So I got, I was able to, you know, have a sort of a thank you moment. With mm-hmm. You Gilbert shared that about with that. Yeah. Yeah. Pretty amazing. And the other thing that happened that day was Gilbert told me about his podcast, uh-huh. you know, and then I, so I got to discover that. Yeah. Which is fantastic. Especially a very certain episode. Yeah. <laughs> yes. No. One. There's only one that I really like because I'm named in it.
0: That's right. That's right. Yeah, I think you were one of the first people who singled out my uh, my appearance on that.
1: Oh, I listen to it all the time. I mean, I, I don't I, have
0: yeah yeah a ginormous audience, but no. I do remember coming back to work at table or something, and you've mentioned it. Um, do you? Watch the things you're in, and did you watch the pilot when it showed up on Amazon before it was picked up for a series?
1: I don't think so because I don't think I would have had Amazon at the time. Right. Uh, Like I, I, to me, I think at the at the time it seemed like such an anomaly. I kind of I was still in the camp of thinking like surely this isn't (laughs) they don't make television this way. Right. Right. I was a little you know I've I've always been a little bit behind on these.
0: But you also thought they were going to wake up and realize they had spent too much money. On the pilot, (laughs) realized that they could never maintain that over a series, not knowing that they were going to be spending a hell of a lot more ultimately.
1: Well, I wasn't privy to the whole, like, I wasn't, you know, I was in such a small part of the pilot, so I only saw little bits and pieces, but I'm sure, yeah.
0: But to walk on that set, as you described it, New York dressed as 1958 for at least a block, maybe more. Yeah, no, it was
1: amazing. And the background actors, just like.
0: In all in period
1: garb, yeah. And everybody, you know, there was, yeah, and New York was, you know, did we? When
0: did we shoot it? It well, was 2016, but I'm trying to think of what the date was. It debuted in March of 17, 2017. So clearly, it was shot before the end of the year 2016.
1: I'm just trying to think if, it, or if so it is it was my like, assumption, if it was before or after the election, because I feel like
0: there was still hope in the air.
1: I want. I just wonder. I wonder if there was hope in the air, or if it was. People just couldn't be happier to disappear into some other
0: landscape. Yeah. Yeah.
1: But I feel like maybe we shot the pilot before and then we did, you know, obviously the news. I don't don't remember.
0: Right. So when did you eventually see it? I don't remember. Assuming you ever did. I watched it today. (laughs) Thank you. Listen, this is one of the bonuses for me. I get to force... People I admire and have the good fortune of working with to watch themselves when they had already decided that would never happen. Yeah.
1: (laughs) But you I didn't see you in it.
0: (laughs) Yeah. No, you didn't. You didn't. They uh, in fact. They had to break a promise to themselves when they brought me in for episode two and the rest of the series. They'd already promised each other that I would never have anything to do with the show. When um. they were making the pilot, you know who's not going to be in this? <laughs> <laughs> and they started putting a list together and I was on. Yeah, but then you called Rob Reiner. And then I called Rob Reiner. That's exactly You're right. Because everything goes through him. Yeah.
1: But, I, but having watched it today, it, it is um, really beautiful. It holds up.
0: But kind of remarkable.
1: And it works on its, I mean, you can see that, that thing that happened with a pilot where they were, you know, it works as a sort of standalone piece. Mm, yeah. You know,
0: yes. It, mo- the history of television pilots, when they become a series is if you love the series, you'll hate the pilot when you go back and yes, because most pilots have all this service they must accomplish to establishing characters, storyline relationships. And there's so much exposition that we don't get left with too much enjoyment yeah. in comparison to what the series become but yeah you're right there's There was great, a magic. there's
1: great moments in it there's such great moments there's an amazing moment when Midge and Joel have come back from the club and they go to bed together and you sort of see, you're about to go into this thing where you see how Miriam is living this sort of double life with her makeup and her ablutions and everything they lie down they say goodnight Gracie to each mm-hmm. other And they lie down and it's a sound shift. Yeah. It's just a brilliant change in tone. Just the Mm -hmm. sound just drops out into what it sounds like at four o'clock in the morning. Just the void of space. It's just, it's the simplest little thing, but it just had, it it just punched me today. And then, you know, she goes through this process of taking off her makeup and putting on her cream and. Yeah. But she lifts the curtain. Yeah.
0: Creates a space so that the sun yeah. will come through, which we, we'd have to do the math on as it's happening. I at first, what, what's happening? Why is she? Right. Oh, 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 oh.
1: So it, but it's so that it comes through only for, like, so that she gets hit with it first.
0: In her eyes to wake her up. That's her alarm clock, which she cannot set because that might wake up her husband. Yeah. Yeah, the whole... Uh, that was one of the most staggering things to me when I first watched the pilot, thinking, oh, okay, now I know what this show is capable of. Right. In those moments.
1: Yeah. It, moments like that reveal so much about the relationship, that what's you know actually going on, and who this woman is.
0: Who this woman is, what she's willing, quote unquote, to do to keep her manned. Uh, more importantly, how that fit into the female mindset of 1958. And then the bigger overview Oh, so this is what Amy Sherman and Dan Palladino are going to give us. Yes.
1: Also, it's that she's Abe Weissman's son, like that she understands that she's the type of person who thinks about where how the sun enters a room in the morning. Yeah. That she understands the spheres, you know, the position of the spheres, that she has that kind of right. sort of pristine understanding of surroundings that, you know. Only a, you know, only a genius could.
0: Well, that's, you know, listen, everything I think we learn along the way tells us and reverberates, be more specific. The way an actor breaks down a scene for an audition, the way an actor learns how to act, the way you want to perform in front of an audience or a camera. How can I be more specific? So when you read. Is that something people say? Well.
1: Mine is hope it sticks.
0: (laughs) I thought yours was, hope it doesn't stink. (laughs) Our sponsor this week is Manscaped. To be clear, this message is for every gender possible. Whether these products are for you or someone you love, or maybe just someone you'd very much like to smooth it up down there. Manscaped is about to make this summer the smoothest yet. There's a reason Manscaped is the leader in below-the-waist grooming. So dive headfirst into this smooth summer by going to manscaped.com for 20% off and free shipping with your code MAZEL. Manscaped Performance Package 4.0 has everything you need. They have built the ultimate grooming bundle for your summer fun. Their lawnmower 4.0 trimmer features a cutting edge ceramic blade to reduce grooming accidents. Thanks to their advanced safe skin technology, the lawnmower 4.0 has a 7,000 RPM motor mm. and new multifunction on off switch that can engage a travel lock and gives you the ability to turn the 4,000K LED spotlight on and off when needed. For a more precise shave. Did I mention this summer? This trimmer of yours is waterproof too. Beach, lake, or shower. This razor will gently, if not magically, remove the most annoying hairs. Of course, once you have the perfect haircut, use Manscaped's liquid formulations to keep that freshness even at the hottest summer barbecues. Their crop. Preserver deodorant with a smooth aloe vera formula is the best in the business for below the waist freshness. And this clear drying formula will keep you looking good while smelling terrific. Manscaped even threw in two free gifts to their Performance Package 4.0. The Manscaped Boxers and Shed Travel Bag. Wearing sandals and some nasty toenails during the summer months. Oh, take a look at the Shears 2.0, a luxury nail grooming kit. This kit includes stainless steel nail cutters, tweezers, and grooming scissors. Get 20% off and free shipping with the code MAZLE. At manscaped.com, that's 20% off and free shipping with the code MAZEL at manscaped.com. Time to make this the smoothest summer ever. So when you read the script and then see the show and you realize, oh, we're going to get that specific. Oh, it's important to the show's creator and the execution of those written words to be this specific. That scene is probably one of the handful from the first episode that make it crystal clear. That's what this show can be and will be. Yeah, And everyone I've spoken to about the pilot in, from the creative world mentions that moment. So it resonated.
1: Yeah, it does. It also is, it sort of also is in the sort of fable of Midge and where she's about to go. It's kind of like, this is partly your doing, like mm-hmm. your undoing is partly your refusal to deal with the truth that's right you know whether it's you know for whatever reason she's doing it if it's a sign herself what how her mother raised her you know Mm -hmm. there's all these machinations at play but it is
0: even to the point when joel after bombing comes back to the apartment and announces he's leaving he's packing a suitcase my dreams didn't turn out the way i wanted she presses him for more what are you talking about and he finally reveals i've been having an affair with my secretary and it's a length of time that there isn't a moment really where the camera reveals or the midge character has dialogue that speaks to an underlying sense of that was long enough where she could have known did she have any idea right right so all those bits, you're right, speak to who the Midge character is and what she has made of her life up until that point and by whose design.
1: Yeah.
0: And then there is a psychotic break yeah. that comes from that same night yeah. after bad Passover wine. Oh, yeah, that's right. Yeah. And also the way her parents react. Uh, she takes that information a few floors up to her parents' apartment yeah. Joel is gone. And the way the parents' reaction is written and performed is also otherworldly in terms of television storytelling. You've got two great actors, of course, in Maren Hinkle and Tony mm-hmm. Shalhoub. But Man, Oh Man, the architecture of those beats as designed by Amy
1: yeah, and I think as as an audience, I really enjoy watching people be horrible to other people that they love.
2: Yes, within a I family mean, that structure, is like,
1: that is life, you know. And so it's many rich, yeah, yeah. And Amy's great at that. I mean, that's you know, and you know, so much of the time, you're just like, oh, why are you just go, "Oh, they're being yeah. so horrible."
0: <laughs> With family dynamic, you know, yeah, there is a sense of that in this pilot and in this series when the family has these moments together that is uh up there with death of a salesman and the list goes on and on yeah but
1: they stick it out you know as families sometimes do sometimes do 49 percent.
0: yeah (laughs) that's what it is (laughs) and so when you watched it today along with that scene were there any other beats of oh shit i forgot how great that was or Look at that.
1: The whole, really, I mean, it was the whole thing, the kind of the, the, just the design of the whole thing. Yeah. There's some beautiful touches. There's a, just a scene of just a few leaves falling from a tree. Right. There was actually just things that I just were from that pilot that sort of the show has actually moved away from Mm -hmm. certain things, you know, because I think it was still finding its way, but it just,
0: you mean cinematically or storytelling?
1: Cinematically. Um, or characters. Yeah, more cinematically, I guess. Characters, not so much. I mean, the one thing, the biggest thing was like, when did we do that? And how, what year is it now? <laughs> right. Because it hasn't been like two, ten years. It hasn't been like.
0: Nope. It's been a nickel. Right. You served a nickel in Juliet. I mean, that's a time. That's a chunk of sure. time, though. L- the little bits of uh, midge measuring. Her thighs mm-hmm. with her friend Imogene, brilliantly played by Bailey mm-hmm. DeYoung. And just Midge's line well, well, Imogene, her friend, best friend, asks, How long have you been doing this? And she says, Without any fanfare, 10 years, every day for 10 years. Yeah. And it's a bit of a throwaway. And yet it is a needle scratch stopping <laughs> for me in terms of, I'm sorry, what? Yeah, Those little tiny, 1958 mentality of, I don't want to say all women, but some women, and certainly the woman that Rachel masterfully inhabits as written and designed by Amy. But in that opening scene, when she's given the speech at the wedding, there's Uh flashbacks, one of which is her and Joel ultimately going to see Lenny Bruce on stage. But one of the first ones is her and two of her college pals having their pubis bleached.
2: Mm -hmm.
0: which drives her in bra only out to the grass, a few floors down running in circles, trying to cool the area. Yeah. It was in that moment that I remember thinking, not just Amy's architecture of storytelling, but also Rachel's commitment to realizing Amy's architecture and you know there's a a deafness of of timing and nailing it,
1: yeah, and also Rachel's playing the the brilliance of this character who's so good at living in that world. yes, she's so you know she's so adept at surviving that world, but on the fringes of that world that you know is the gaslight, are people live there is a world where people are living different lives, and she's just sort of like going down and visiting that world because of Joel's little dreams.
0: Hobby. Hobby, yeah. And when she does, by the way, she is, you're right, she's following her own version of life.
1: Yeah, but that something is something can't be satisfied in that life, you know, and she only, just by going down that drunken tirade at the gaslight, you know, she just discovers something about her. But she, there's only like, there's only like three beats where you see her kind of before that just, looking over the horizon of uh, her own dreams just yeah. and it's only when Joel is like asleep on her shoulder in the ki- just where she ch- can just take a moment to think about
0: she's the one making notes her. in the book she's the yeah. one pitching ideas comedically what to do with the sweater with the holes in it yeah she's the funny one in the family by a lot yeah he's a guy with a dream that starts with doing somebody else's act yeah. and she's Her only method is to have original comedic thoughts. Right. But the idea that Amy's design is that the character goes back to the gaslight to get the Pyrex. Right. You know, because in a writing mode of how do I get her on that stage? I can't have her go down just because she's that drunk and she wants to return to the scene of what? what crime there was, there's no returning, you know, and, and yeah. the, the puzzle that that is, those are the things that continue to astonish me about the show. And Amy's and Dan's design and execution are the thought processes of how do we get from A to Z and um, what happens. Oh, it was, along yeah. The way. When
1: I was watching it today, the second time she shows up with the brisket and yep. Susie does, isn't interested.
2: Uh-huh.
1: I don't know if it's brisket the second time, but when she showed, I, I thought to myself, She's gonna leave the Pyrex? (laughs) Like, how's she gonna get the Pyrex there? (laughs)
0: Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And there's a very subtle realization when she is in the kitchen where she looks at the spot where we later realize the Pyrex sits unused, waiting to be used. She just there's her POV of this area in the kitchen. And back on her eyes of realization. And then next thing you know, she's headed down to the gaslight. But again, there even those little pieces of the puzzle that are left for the audience to do some math here, to do a little bit of detective yeah. work. The, so they're never leading the audience by the nose. They're constantly surprising the viewer with the story. And, and the actors are all surprising themselves. With their performances. I think the word I kept coming back to was execution. Cause I don't know what your experience was reading pilot script for the first time. Cause I was able to watch the pilot. Right. Before reading the script. I just remember reading the script afterwards thinking they did all this. Yeah. And that's not what well, they also, and,
1: and that they, and then they executed it
0: too. Yeah.
1: I mean, even when you read a good script, you still, sometimes when I read a script that's too good, I get worried because I go, Oh man, like what a miracle that they got their fingers to do that. Yeah. But you still have to take the next, you know, important step of executing it, but they did all of that. I don't know. I, I don't know how Amy and Dan do what they do. Yep. Because of my relationship to time and like what I'm able to get done in the course of a day, which is very little, Sure. I'm just, it's astonishing to me. And I'm convinced that they have some kind of like uh, you know, pause button or something where they can mm-hmm. just extend time. I don't actually think that I think that they just are. So they just work.
0: Yeah. They, they, work, they do they work. just work and they, the, what they were able to work through during the pandemic as people are now, well, while we're recording this, the last two episodes of the full fourth season dropped uh, a couple of days ago.
1: That's right. Yeah.
0: And people are finally, you know, having the full experience, all of that written during a time when the country, if not most of the world was locked down and people were, and members of the cast were questioning the way that the rest of us are all people. When do we get back to quote unquote normal? And a couple of years later, we're still asking that, but at the time, a lot of us were also asking, "How can Amy and Dan feel funny, think funny, write funny, be who they are in this current brain and soul and heart numbing?"
1: Yeah, no, I, I, I was like, I thought maybe the whole season would just be like, we would just go out to Long Island and do a remake of Interiors or something, you know, just <laughs>
0: like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, well, you know, the first episode of season four. Just to touch again on Amy and Dan's brilliance work ethic and execution i will tell you as a proud member of the writers guild since 1987 hey, nice. when i read and then saw the wonder wheel scene on uh-huh. coney island yeah the houdini escape act from a writer's standpoint that all of that is because it is just a shit ton of exposition that all these characters in midge's life are going to receive this horrible news. They're all going to have their own selfish reactions. And rather than that being six scenes, it all happens in one scene, in a visual, metaphorical, topsy-turvy, unnerving environment. I mean, it's a Rubik's Cube of, how did you do this? How did you come up with, in that writer's hell of (laughs) so-called facing the blank page how does midge let everyone know that she's been fired and i just remember thinking when i read it and thinking when i watched it i don't know who comes up with this who comes up with this and executes it the way they do and did
1: yeah yeah Yeah, no it's incredible
0: it began with the
1: pilot you know there were i mean i haven't watched that episode because i'm not in it so i don't
0: i understand and as i've told you while most actors can't Bear to see anything they've done. Everything, every thing I've ever done plays on a continuous loop on seven different screens in my home. And it's not great for Jamie. It's not, uh, it's even worse than it sounds. Still learn. (laughs) Well, (laughs) going on 15 years, I still think so. I still think there's time. If there is anything else on the pilot, that comes to mind. I, I like the introduction of the characters. Uh, I would like to just, your take on the introduction of the Susie character, you know, it's sort of a classic curmudgeon.
1: It's brilliant. I mean, I, I had, for, I actually, it was amazing to me. I had forgotten yeah. that that was what she was. Yeah. Because their story has now be you know, their relationship is now so embedded in, you know, the pursuit and her belief in Miriam and Miriam's concern for suit. Like, the origins. They've been growing. through so much at this point, but yeah. but to see it was great. I was because you're looking at it, kind of going, "How are these two ever gonna?" Yep. Come together. That's not going to happen.
0: No. How did they?
1: Yeah, she's such a sort of. She's just an impossible. Mm-hmm. She's the
0: wall of no in that episode. I mean, who writes? Who decides? I'm going to introduce a character by having her come from off-camera to on-camera, saying the word fuck really extended and long (laughs) as she approaches the phone to answer. You know, as a stand-up comedian, I came to learn, really, you've got, I used to think 20 and 10, and I think now five. You've got five seconds, the opening five seconds, to relax the sphincter of the audience, in my mind, that they are in good hands. Yeah, They are a beast. They did not show up to rehearsal. They've never acted together as a group. There's a very bizarre social phenomenon that happens within an audience. Mm -hmm. And if you can get them on your same page in the first five seconds, that's a challenge that I have enjoyed and have tried and failed various ways. Oh, yeah. So when it happens on screen, like the introduction of Alex Borstein's multi Emmy award winning portrayal, of Susie Meyerson. Uh, holy cow. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And then also she's, she is sort of, she does provide, you know, she's that thing that Midge is denying, you know, that kind of Midge's lifestyle of kind of keeping up with, you know, her image and
2: mm-hmm. the
1: work she has to put in of being the perfect wife, the perfect mother, the perfect ankle. Right. Susie is a kind of just a, a is a revelation, you know, that there's, there's another way. You can be honest with yourself. Yeah. Right.
0: And, and Susie has her else.
1: own sort of, you know, she's in, has her own version of denial, but she is, she's there, you know. Yeah.
0: And also to talk about the architecture once again, not just establishing the Susie character with the first word out of her mouth, but her character is going to represent, no, I'm telling you, you can have a career at this. Right. The next morning, later that night, the next morning. But when we first meet her, what's been articulated and executed is that, as you said, Susie represents the real, honest, no bullshit source of opinion. Mm-hmm. So that we don't even have to waste time when getting to know these characters of mid saying to Susie, Well, what do you know? We as the audience have already decided. Wow, you won her over? Right. Right. Who we, we see her through her eyes. Uh, when uh, we don't yet know that the Joel character has done Bob Newhart's material, unless you happen to be a fan of Bob Newhart. Sure. Prior to seeing this episode. And we're sensing something from Susie over on the side looking at him. And Amy, who directed the episode, actually won an Emmys for writing and directing and best comedy, all in this pilot. Amy makes a point of having Midge's character or the character of Midge, glance over and see Susie watching Joel dismissing what she sees
1: of him. She can sniff it out, right? Yeah. Or does she know?
0: Midge doesn't know why, but Amy makes a point of letting us, the audience, see that Midge has clocked
2: the Susie
0: Susie character who's clocked her husband as being not impressive. Yeah. Yeah. And then when Susie comes up the steps to the sidewalk where Joel and Midge are after the performance, and Susie returns the Pyrex, it's the first time when she walks away, Joel's character says, Who's that guy? <laughs> <laughs> Which I completely forgot was in the pilot. You know, this runner that has been used is it well, it's in the Guinness book. I don't know the exact number, but
1: Oh no, it's like, I mean, who knew that yeah. a horse's heartbeat could come back
0: so many times? <laughs> <laughs>
1: yes. But it works every time. Every time. Yeah.
0: It's crazy. Just the sense in the pilot, like we were saying, how most pilots are not entertaining as much as the series is going to be, because they're introducing and establishing all these characters. But in this case, when that little moment we talked about with Midge in the makeup while her husband sleeps, the moment we meet Abe Weisman as multi-award winning mm-hmm. performed by Tony Shalhoub, when his reaction to His daughter saying, my husband has left me. Yeah. It's staggering. Yeah. It it represents a moment in time of also 1958. It represents today and just in regards to the eternal reaction of a father being completely out of touch with what his daughter's going through. It's all happening to him.
1: What does he say? He said, go back? Yeah.
0: Yeah. He says, fix your face, put on a dress, find him and make him come back home. Right. abe weissman says to his daughter right. after yeah. he has that very funny moment of getting in her face with what did i right. tell you when you <laughs> yes, went yes, to that yes, college
1: that's right. yeah. yeah yeah well you know it also speaks to his just the, that sort of standard parental concern just like yeah he doesn't know who she is she's done such a good job at presenting this person he doesn't know it's all come to unravel. who she is he doesn't yeah. know that she's fine that she's that this is meant to be, that this is...
0: No, she was playing by a playbook that he had agreed to until this moment. Yeah. And also, Maren Hingle as Rose, just wailing of crying, instantly goes from a heartfelt reaction to a dramatic Sarah Bernhardt sort of, um, the way that only a mother can cut deeper by... (laughs) She's incredible. By making it about themselves.
1: Yep, especially with a daughter.
0: Yep. Yeah. Yeah. So it culminates in her bailing out Lenny. And we realize eventually, at least in the pilot, she bailed him out because she had a very important question for him. It was enough that Susie Meyerson said, you've got it. I've seen it twice in 15 years of doing this one was when this tan prick from L.A. came out named Mort Saul and the second time was you. I guess Lenny never played the gaslight. But that was enough to propel her, but she needs to hear from Lenny Bruce, who she saw on stage in the early stages of her dating, which we saw earlier. And she ends up sharing a cab with this guy. So she goes back the next day before his wife, Honey, arrives. Right. To bail him out. Yeah. Because she's got questions for him and um you mentioned earlier that that scene either for the audition or for the shooting for the pilot was really the first time for you to get away from the material and get into how did this guy think and talk and react and you yeah, gave all the yeah. credit to amy yeah just fine and understandable but
1: okay maybe the trench coat had something to do with it
0: right i was going to say the hair and the trench coat and the cigarette should get a little credit was there a lot of takes were there a lot of try this not that
1: that i recall i think it was kind of we did it pretty quickly but it was fun
0: you had worked on it i'm guessing feverishly during the audition but you didn't know amy's real take beyond the written word at that point you had made all the creative decisions in the performance yeah and did you find much of a transition from what you had designed to get the job to what you did to make your fearless leader happy especially i i I tell people all the time the only note I think I have ever gotten from amy in in all these years and seasons was to pace it up,
1: yeah, I think that is maybe all that came in, really <laughs> yeah, I think uh there's never a I debate
0: or a conversation about a thought process within the actual character ever no.
1: No, and I, yeah, I, I mean, I know that I loved what he says. You know, I love, I loved what he says to her. Yeah, you know about comedy because it's so relatable to anybody who's chosen an occupation that is going to level them over and over again. That you know it shouldn't exist, like cancer and God. And I love that. Oh. Uh, you know, I, I think that's a really that's Amy talking, and in, in a way that's so her and so
0: well that's the thing she takes this iconic lenny bruce character and puts original thoughts and ideas into him that are instantly organic yeah and and earned somehow Yeah, like who the hell are you that you know how to write (laughs) for for the voice of this madman yes yeah and just execute the torture and so as an artist that amy has been for decades clearly she's relating her experience. Yeah. A bit one would think.
1: I love that. I love that moment. I love that scene. I love that he clearly does love it. You know? Yeah. There's a, in that interview that I mentioned, the Nat Hentoff interview, he asks Lenny why he does it because Mm. Lenny's so sort of far gone in that, at that time, deep in the weeds, maybe even past the weeds of litigation. And he says to Lenny, like, why do you do it? And Lenny just says, because it's fun. (laughs) <laughs> and it's bye. so <laughs> truth it's so truthful like it's just so
0: you know it's ruined his life it's a guy ruined, whose face reeks of there's nothing fun about this nothing fun like i haven't had fun
1: in 512 years <laughs> right but he says because it's fun and then he says because it's nice to say a poem in front of people
0: oh wow, right. jesus and that. Oh, Jesus. A poem that you're writing on the spot. Yeah. yeah. That, that's the other thing, if you mm-hmm. don't mind circling back, just for a beat, we're just mm-hmm. about done, um, which shockingly is the first time I've said that <laughs> and meant it ever in my life, actually, I'm realizing, not just with you now. The job of executing a vision, right? Yeah. And the torture that goes with it back to the beginning of the design of this show, right? Yeah. And we've talked about and celebrated just in the course of a casual conversation, I feel, being a bit astounded by by the vision and the execution of it. Mm -hmm. But I guess it, it just can't be said enough for my likes in terms of, on paper, what's the show about? You know, I remember initially telling people, well, what's the show about a journey of a mother who's and wife and daughter in 1958 whose world implodes and falls ass backwards into a stand-up comedy career? You know, there's just, there's no way to what? There's no way to, right. and that does no one justice. The utter uh, ridiculousness of where this all came from and where it all went and how it was executed along the path. Yeah by Amy and Dan. It's sort of I kind of
1: a, feel like the show is about it's what you suppress will come back
0: mm. to
1: get you. And if you're lucky and you choose to serve it, you might have some fun. But it is about sort of to me that that you know that suppressing the voice is a bad idea. Yeah. yeah. And if you have a song to sing, you got to sing. Yeah, man. But only if you have a song to sing. Like that's not to say everybody should. sing.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Let's be clear. <laughs> I know the Internet has given all of you a voice, foolishly. And
1: if you've got a song to yell. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah. Just because you've been given a voice, unless you can figure out what to do with it. Keep it to yourself. <laughs> yeah,
1: that's not a voice.
0: Yeah. And by the way, having a voice is not yelling a thought. Um, Luke, Kirby. Yes, sir. Thank you so much for spending uh, some time just chatting about a thing that we've shared and loved and um somehow we're a part of in a way I feel that you share a similar experience with my own and with everyone I've spoken to over the years who's been involved with the show in every department which is yeah this one was just special and yeah. ridiculous and I don't know how it even happened
1: yeah
0: how it was even allowed to continue
1: yeah, it's a bit of a lifesaver.
0: Yeah. Yeah.
1: Really, really uh yeah. What a beautiful thing. How many more seasons do you think we'll get?
0: <laughs> 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 it was kind of amazing from day one that Amy said this is a five season show. And we were all like, What yeah. are you talking about? She said, Well, given the opportunity to do five seasons, it will it will be over in five seasons. Yeah. I don't know. Sure. She Nostradamus that shit pretty magically. Thank you, man. Thank you all right. for all this and more yeah. and um, a continued success where you are in the world, which we'll uh, talk about more when I see you mm-hmm. next. And um, yeah, unless there's some other comment or some other moment was there. I'm sure this is one of those horrible questions that's asked in press junkets. What's the weirdest thing a fan ever said to you, but was there an enjoyable moment from, um, Maybe I I, I know when we're recognized by someone we admire, I don't know, for me, that tends to be, I remember being someone's dated a Golden Globes thing, all right, Matthew Perry, and um, 100 years ago, and and as we're leaving, it's a traffic jam, and everyone is walking one step every four minutes as all these people try to leave this ballroom, and I end up side by side with Gene Hackman, who... Uh is arguably the greatest actor that ever lived. And yeah. never given the same performance twice in yeah. all of well, my experience as a fan. And, um, you know, at first he looked down at me because I'm short and he's not and uh, smiled. But it was a, it was a, a smile I've seen a, a billion times, meaningless. And um, uh-huh. just one human acknowledging another. And finally, after being stuck in this traffic jam for seemed like a half hours, probably a very long four minutes, I said, uh, I've been a fan of yours as long as I can remember. And he smiled and looked down, you know, and then another four minutes went by and he looked back to me and said, an eye of you. And uh, wherever that came from, even if it was just politeness. So was there ever a moment where there was a compliment that came your way from this work of bringing Lenny to eyeballs in a way that hadn't been seen? That is to simply say it hadn't really been done by a Canadian. Um <laughs> sorry I had to get in somehow. Yeah,
1: I know I should have played more Saul
0: yep oh good point
1: the biggest one has been that Kitty Bruce mm. gave me her blessing I mean that wow. that, that made it feel like um, whatever anybody else said yeah. doesn't matter because it you know at least we're not kind of you know that we're not troubling those you know yes you know because there's of course there's so many ways to play this guy and everybody has their interpretation and their feelings about him and their archives.
0: You could make it entertaining.
1: Yeah. What I always felt with the important thing with this role—this is sounds kind of base—but all I wanted to do was make sure that I played a man, yeah. not a legend or an outlaw or you know all these things that you know he had within him. Right. But that I really wanted him to be rooted in the trouble that comes with this work. Yeah. You know, and that. Human. That is why he, why he, what, you know, what he finds so satisfying about his relationship to Midge is that they have that kind of simpatico, you know, just in terms of what it is to do this job and to at the same time try and be a person to the people you love. And I feel so strongly having kind of researched Lenny that love was a huge driving force in his life. I mean, for somebody so void of sentimentality, he did say there are never enough I love yous. Mm. You know, uh, so that to me just made me feel sort of once I had that, which mm-hmm. came in after the first season. Oh, when wow. I had that, I felt, I felt a kind of freedom with playing him, where now I just feel like he's like a friend to me. You yeah. know, I just feel this. And I've just been absorbing him and taking him in, and you know, every year that we come back to it, I go back to the recording. I just lie and pass out. Listen, yeah, I get so excited, and I walk around New York, and I just <laughs> just get right into it, and you know, it wakes up my body in a completely different way that I didn't know, and yeah, and it opens, you know, it just opens opens me up in a really nice way. So that having Kitty's kind of approval was big. And Art Matrano reached out to Dan to say oh, that wow. he had, that the first time he met Lenny Bruce, Lenny taught him how to <laughs> how to not come up with a goofy song and perform it for <laughs> two decades on uh was how to um <laughs> roll roll a joint uh with, with one, one hand. hand. Yeah. Yeah that's
0: spectacular well um yeah. i'm relieved and thrilled that i asked a absolute pedestrian question yeah. of uh a run-in with a fan because it led to uh, the most meaningful way possible the
1: big the what i'm I, this is the last one that i'll mention is that the first person that that said anything was richard lewis wow he tweeted something evidently because michael zegan told he's like did you hear richard lewis loves well, you, lenny
0: Having known Richard for 40 years, that's um, A, something I didn't know, and B, uh, completely unheard of, just in terms yeah. of of his, uh, to my experience, he's about sharing love, but the capability right. of acknowledging that. Yeah, yeah. Wow.
1: Well, we share the same birthday, so maybe it was that. Ah, yeah, I'm sure that's what it was. I'm sure that's all it was. But we also share that birthday with Gary Busey, so you know, I haven't heard from him yet. <laughs>
0: Here's what you'll hear from Gary Busey Should you run into him Cats Not a bad musical But you don't want them on your roof (laughs) Good point (laughs) That was my last experience with Gary Busey That's fantastic I finally found a moment to share it I'm I'm so happy to know you Buddy Bless you And um, can't wait to see your face In front of mine Until then Love to D and H. Yep. And uh don't stop uh remembering how much you loved this job. You got it. All right, pal. Thank you, Kevin. You bet. Well, how about that, ladies and Jews, as a first episode? Mr. Luke Kirby. Oh, I just love him. Does it come through? Did it come through when you when you listen to us talk to each other? That clearly was the longest conversation I've had with Luke while working together all these years but clearly we we were a bit more focused in our conversation this go around than we might be on set or at a table read or out to dinner uh yeah a real deep guy but instantly and genuinely comfy and cozy with dissecting his process and his experience and that's not always easy i must tell you for a lot of show folk he's always funny he he thinks funny you know that's something that's Quite rare and such a gifted dramatic actor, quite frankly, to just feel and think funny. And you hear reasons why through our conversation, his background, his father, uh, who loved comics and turned him on to some great ones, including, I'm going to say, our own Gilbert Gottfried, who was great in the pilot episode. There it is, pilot episode discussed in length with Mr. Luke Kirby, who I am forever in debt, of course. And listen, I mean it If you have follow-up questions for him If you have comments, write to us At my at gmail.com Post on your socials And tag me so I know I'm aware I can include you in your Comments with follow-up of my own Let me know your thoughts Share them with me, tell everyone you've ever met My Mrs. Maisel pod is For you You know, another thing I would love you folks to do is to review this podcast on your socials. So I would like to first offer up a video thank you personally from me for doing so, but also some video uh, message thank yous from some of our guests. If your email gets read on the show, there will be a very special gift shipped to you. So be sure to provide your shipping address with your question in your emails to me Again, all of our socials, My Mrs. Maisel Pod, Instagram, Twitter, and so on. We have to boost that awareness. You know how this works. So I threaten I'll be reading your emails, and I will, of course. One of the other things, I'll be texting some of these annoyingly famous friends of mine to pepper them for some questions for me, for my guests, or comments about the show. As I'm asking you to do the same in your emails to us, I'm going to be peppering some of these famous folks, separate from having them on the show, the podcast. So I'm going to read one now, as I did pepper a few in preparation for this one. And this one comes to us from, I'm just going to say it, our very own Jewish Marvel Universe superhero, in this case, Ant-Man, or Ant-Man, uh, Paul Rudd. So Paul said, hey, Kevin, congrats on the pod. I'm excited to hear it. I don't know when I'm going to be able to do that. You know, I have to prioritize my life. So, yeah, it's going to be... I'm excited for you. I should mention that. If I haven't, I am. I love Maisel. I've told you that in person. And my question for you about the series is, what sort of research did you do or who are you drawing on for your ridiculously funny character, Moish Maisel? Well, thank you, Paul Rudd. Um. Yeah, so I am completely lifting a lot of the energy from Moish Maisel from Lou Jacoby, one of the all-time great Yiddish theater actors, but also I did this movie, Avalon, very early in my career, and really sort of the beginning of my so-called dramatic acting in Barry Levinson's third Baltimore set film, yep, Avalon. And so Lou Jacoby plays one of the great cousins or uncles, we cut the turkey without me, we leave. If you saw the movie, you know that line. And I am stealing a lot of his rhythms and stuff, you know, stealing slash inspired by. So I give him a tremendous amount of credit. And then I had my grandfather and his paternal twin, who escaped the Cossacks from Russia at a very young age to come to America, who had every Passover would just holler at each other from far ends of the family table of maybe 15 of us. And they would get into arguments about what who remembered what from the uh, uh, mother country. And uh, you're an idiot, uh, go on, was a big one. Ah, go on! That was a big one, which I used during the 13th thir- 13 Jews speech, I think was the very first episode that I was in, episode two, season one, Moish talking about the 13 Jews, channeling my family and Lou And Thank you, Ant-Man Paul Rudd, for your question and your comments. And if you, the listener, have any follow-up comments for me or Paul Rudd, please, uh, again, send us your uh, questions or uh, (laughs) comments. My Mrs. Maisel at gmail.com. That's my Mrs. Maisel At gmail.com. So remember to watch next week's episode of The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel on Amazon Prime. And remember to listen and subscribe to My Mrs. Maisel Pod on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, however you're listening now. And, of course, listen to My Mrs. Maisel Pod on Amazon Music. Or just ask Alexa. Alexa, play My Mrs. Maisel Pod on Amazon Music. Thank you. All right, that's our episode for today. I will see you in my dreams. But until then, this is your host, Kevin Pollock asking you from the heart, please be kind to each other. Okay, closing credits time. My Mrs. Mazel pod was created by me, your host, Kevin Pollack, research writer, producer, Jamie Fox, and our engineer, recording, post-production producer genius is Ken Plume. My Mrs. Mazel pod is brought to you by the fine folks at Q-Code. Q-Code. Sounds like something, doesn't it? Oh, lastly, you should know i'm told by legal to make this crystal clear that my mrs mazel pod was not sanctioned in any way shape or form by amazon prime nor the show's creators amy sherman palladino and dan Palladino. although i feel the need to mention i did get their blessing okay good that should save me some legal fees welcome to a journey into the heart of the texas renaissance festival the nation's largest and rowdiest celebration of medieval fantasy But what lurks beneath the facade of tights and turkey legs? Well, we dove deep into the empire to uncover a history marred by mystery and misconduct. Murders, assaults, and other crimes that tarnish its legacy. This isn't just a fairy tale. It's a cautionary tale of power, fantasy, and the consequences that follow when they all collide. Search for Crime Waves Renaissance Texas on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening now.